Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, the radio show all about traveling like a boss by being your own boss. Stay tuned for weekly interviews featuring guests that have built their own online businesses. If you would like to have access to our entire back catalog, visit travellikeabosspodcast.com for instant access. And here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey, so guys, this is Johnny, and welcome to episode 105 of the Travel Like Boss podcast. I'm here with Sam Marks. He was one of the speakers at the 2016 Nomad Summit over this weekend, and he had a, a freaking incredible talk on how he started and sold a business for $100 million. Sam, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. We got an assortment of drinks available at our disposal, so... Uh... I actually just noticed that we have the most random selection of, of bottles and cups on our tables. So what do we have? I'm drinking a Pocola Latte. For those of you who don't know, uh, I actually don't know either, but I think it's I think it's a small latte. Um, yeah, when they handed it to me at the coffee shop, it, it looked like it was empty. It felt like it was empty. Yeah, it's it's not really a value play, but um, it'll power you up for the for the podcast. And then uh, I asked Johnny how long you want to do the podcast for. I was expecting 15 minutes. And he said an hour. So, so then um, I saw the corner of my eye a bottle of whiskey. So I thought we'll do coffee the first half, and then probably whiskey the second half. Okay, yeah, I like it. Are you gonna pour any of that whiskey into the coffee? <laughs> I didn't think about that. What's isn't that called a like an Irish coffee? Yeah, maybe I, maybe yeah. that's a go. All right, we'll yeah. do that. It'd be like one part whiskey, one part. Uh... Yeah. So this whiskey is actually it's it's Scottish whiskey, Scotch whiskey, but it's blended with sherry, and this one's made by Benmore. Which is a Thai brand, but it's actually really good. Is it, you bought this at Seven Eleven, right? I bought that Seven Eleven. Okay, just to, <laughs> just to put some context to it. And but. it was—I uh, was actually expecting to grab the other bottle, which is actually a little bit better. That one doesn't have sherry. Okay. So well, if you want to try that one later, you're welcome to. Sure. Well, we got time, I guess. Yeah. So these, so just a, a recap on, um, <laughs> I guess, the Thai whiskey. The most common is called Samsung, and I'm sure you've had a lot of that. Mm. Yeah. And it's you know. Six dollars a bottle or something. Mm-hmm. It's what, what are your thoughts? Uh, when I first got here, I started. I started was drinking it a lot, obviously, because it's like what you just you just buy at Seven Eleven. It's convenient. Um, and one time, I gave. Uh, I had an issue with my motorcycle, and I just walked it down the street. And there's like some mechanic down there on Soy Nine, and he uh, he like fixed it. It was like a clutch issue. He didn't he didn't like charge me anything. He like refused to take money. So I went to the store and bought like a bottle of Samsung. And I gave it to him, and he kind of had this like "thank you," but this is like disgusting <laughs> look on his face. So since then, um, you're like trying to get into a little bit more of the fine stuff. And to put some context on this bike mechanic, he doesn't even have a shop. It's just um, like how, how would you even describe it? It's just some guy on the side of the road, right? Well, like they, the the one I went to, I, th- I think it's Soy Nine. They actually own like a cafe restaurant. And oh, that one. but they but he's got like he's always got like some sick bikes out front. I think they might be just his own bikes. And just use it as like a garage for his own bikes. But I had bought this, this, I got this custom made, uh, it's almost like, uh, it's a cafe racer style bike. It's called Zeus. I got it custom in Bangkok and had it shipped up here. And the very first day I took it for a ride, like the whole gearbox like dropped out of it. And, um, I didn't know, you know, just getting things like fixed here and sending it back to Bangkok to be pain in the ass. So I literally just took it in. He just fixed it there. Okay, that, that makes a bit more sense. The one yeah. I was thinking of is the guy. The guy I go to is just on the side of the road, uh, past pump space on the right hand side. Okay. And I would drive by, and I'll just have him put air in my tires, and he'd charge me five baht, which is like. You know, you can do it at like the Shell station right up the road for free. Yeah, and uh, normally it's so much better than the U.S. Mm-hmm. Like in the U.S., if you want to fill up. Your tire, like your tires, which everyone should. You mm-hmm. get better gas mileage, yeah. better for your tires, better economy. It's such a pain in the butt mm-hmm. because you walk. You know, you have to first you have to walk inside, wait in line behind the people buying. <clears throat> you know, whatever they're buying, right, like, right. cans of Red Bull, <laughs> right. truck drivers buy some Adderall, <laughs> and then you say, "Hey, you know, can you please turn on pump? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the air." And he'll look at you like you're a freaking thief, and you're like, "Dude, I just got gas," mm-hmm. and he'll like make you verify it. Okay, I turn it on. Mm-hmm. And then you get like 62 seconds to fill up your tires. Yeah. And they call you four tires. Yeah. And you don't even know what's being filled up to because they, they don't have any pressure gauge. Sure. You got to take like the little PSI uh, <laughs> like pocket gauge or something yeah, with you. So you yeah. try to do that. 
and you you do maybe one or two tires. And they go back inside and be like, "Hey, um, can I do my other two tires?" Mm-hmm. And you and you end up running back and forth four times, or you have to put it in. You have to put in, you know, like, like dollars a coin. Yeah, yeah, it's a pain in the butt. Here, it's awesome. It, it has a machine that you just set what you want it. Uh, to go off on, so I think I, I leave mine on thirty two. Mm-hmm. Just plug it in, and then it just stops. It, it goes beep beep, and you're done. Yeah, that's it. It's free. Yeah. So the issue I had was I I don't know like tire pressure or any of this stuff. Like I used to when I was like thirteen, but now I don't. So I took my bike there the other day, and I had no idea. Like whenever I was like pumping up tires as like a kid, like on my bike, there's always that thought in my background or the back of my head, like this tire is going to explode in my face. And I was having that thought, like, I have no idea how how much air to put in this thing. So I was literally going and asking, you know, some people couldn't understand me. And some, like, lady walked by, and I'm like, good, good. You know, it was like, it was like 24 or something. She's like, oh, some sit, some sit, whatever, two song. So she's like 30. So I think 32 is kind of the magic number to so go the with. The only reason why I've determined 32 being the magic number is I've just spied on enough local Thai people mm-hmm. where that's, <laughs> that's been the most common number. Mm-hmm. So another very uh, convenient and accessible thing here in uh, Thailand, uh, you know, pressure machines. So one thing that, that comes up a lot on the internet is that Chiang Mai is full of broke people just starting out, backpackers and teachers. They say that nobody here is making any money online. Is this true? Um, I think for the most part, that's true. I think that it's uh, that's definitely true. I, but Chiang Mai is, is just a, I mean, it's a great place to live. I think on any budget, um, I certainly came was coming up here before we had our big exit and, um, and living on a shoestring. And to be honest, like my lifestyle is almost exactly the same here um, at this point. So the other th- good thing about Chiang Mai is like it, it always reminds you that you can live like a very, very high quality life on just about nothing, um, which is it's good just to put yourself back in that position. Anyone that's living in like Hong Kong, Singapore, London, they, they feel that that really like hard financial pressure it's good to get to a place where like you can realize you could lose three quarters of your salary and still probably live happier and with with more value in your life and more quality things than than in uh than in a big city so yeah it's it's definitely uh it's definitely appealing to anyone i know that that is doing well it's uh hasn't lost any luster for me certainly I, I like that a lot. I actually just wrote an article on Johnny FD called How Do You Know You're Wealthy? And one of the questions, the 12 questions that was on there was, if there was like some major event that happened, would you be able to continue your lifestyle? Mm-hmm. And I, my answer was, because I'm so used to living very cheaply here in Chiang Mai, like even if I had to start over, like it, it, I'd be fine. You know, uh, I lived in Chiang Mai for a $600 a month budget mm-hmm. years and I was fine. I, was, I loved it. And now that I spend... More, it's still not. I mean, I pretty much do whatever I want. I spend maybe thirteen hundred bucks a month in the U.S. or in Europe or Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think some of the best advice I got when I was younger was just from people that I, I had gotten this from someone who had uh, had made a lot of money and gone bust several times, and they had gotten used to this really extravagant lifestyle that you couldn't wind down, and then they lost everything. So they went from, you know, when you go from from having say like you know, many, many millions of dollars to zero, and you've been living the lifestyle of, a, of someone with that type of money, it's a huge, huge change in your life. And so their advice was just always live well, well under your means. So if you if you have drawbacks in life, you're not taking a big lifestyle cut, you don't have the like the logistics issues of selling tons of stuff and, and, uh, and changing your lifestyle. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, Chiang Mai is just like, it's that type of place that you can come and, you know, I don't know, just coast and, and enjoy it. Yeah, uh, exact feelings. And I think that nowadays there are more and more successful people that are living here. And my favorite part of it is it's not necessarily that successful, you know, super rich people are just moving to Chiang Mai mm-hmm. as like the hot spot. Mm-hmm. Oh, Chiang Mai is the new Monaco. But it's more people who, just like you, were here when they were bootstrapping business. Mm-hmm. And now that even though they have money, they're like, you know what? I like Chiang Mai. Like, why would I? Why would I leave? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and to go back to what you're saying about like kind of a, you know, a, a disastrous situation that when I first came to Chiang Mai, um, I followed up a group in the D.C. up here maybe three years ago. And as soon as I got here, I was like, this is this is my life backup plan. I was already making like plans like if my business in in, the, in Europe didn't work out, like what am I going to do? Like, can I go right back into like a very like 
you know, risky, high growth type of business or am I going to try to do something a little bit more simpler the next time around? And so my backup plan was like, okay, I, I want to acquire two condos in Chiang Mai. And one is like basically a backup plan for me to live in. And the other I can basically use to have like my, you know, my parents or a friend or whoever like live in it. That way, like if, if either my situations turn worse or like a whole world situation turns worse, I can go up and live there. I can have friends or family live there. Like Chiang Mai, there's plenty of like food being grown and, um, and it's cheap enough. Like you can coast. So that's, that was what I started. So I actually, I bought a condo here. We're sitting in the, in the Siri. Um, I bought a condo here before they had broken ground. I had no money. I had to put, I think, like $2,000 down on it, which like was pretty much <laughs> the extent of my checking account at the time. And uh, I mean, I didn't, you know, you can't get a mortgage. It's very difficult to get a mortgage in Thailand or especially to get a mortgage from like the U.S. to buy a, pro- a foreign property. So I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. But um, but that was like my dream was to kind of have a backup plan here. And and um, and I think that's like a lot of people uh, that aren't just living here. But it's like a, a second plan. I like it. That's actually been my backup plan as well. Not to buy a condo, but just even just to rent a place. Yeah. Because you can get places here still for 5000 bottom line. We can always go live with the uh, the forest tribes and the jungle tribes for like free, man. You at the forest and a monster. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you can become a monk. Yeah. No, but seriously, like this this is a great place to live if all if, if Trump wins and somehow the U.S. goes to crap. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or, if, or, or if Sanders wins and the U.S. goes to crap. <laughs> I mean, or just in, in general when the U.S. goes to crap. Right. Uh, I think we all kind of forecast that sometime in our lifetime. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy to think that, right? Yeah. But but there's a very good chance that something's going to happen. Absolutely. Um, but even while we're uh, waiting for bad things to happen, it's still a nice place to live, right? Yeah, I, I like it a lot. And, and the cool thing about Chiang Mai as well is it's a great jumping off point. Mm-hmm. where we can travel so you i mean you traveled a freaking lot mm-hmm. uh, i remember hanging out with you i mean the other thing the other thing about dates and times it's really weird because it feels like sometimes something was just a week ago when it could have been months ago here yeah and i remember hanging out with you or just seeing you in the building and then all of a sudden on facebook you're in south america and i'm like oh cool you know you somehow can teleport to south america that's yeah it's a new teleporting device i've been experimenting with <laughs> But then the most insane thing happened. Like, pretty much a week later, I see a photo of you jumping off of a like a barge in Antarctica mm-hmm. naked. Yeah. Can, can you tell us about that? Well, uh, let's see. The Antarctica thing. Um, well, I had always wanted to go like to South America. And I always kind of assumed that my life was going to take me Asia. And then when I was done with Asia, I'd go to South America. And then that would be it. Like, I would just settle in South America, meet some some cute Argentina girl and and the USA was never really in the cards. It was always like Asia or South America. Um, but I, I, it was just a good time for me because it was kind of in between projects and um, I just had a lot of, of flexibility. So I thought it was a good time to go down and kind of explore South America before Christmas. And and um, I went to Yacht Week last year in, in Greece in the summertime and my boat captain had gone to Antarctica like 12 times. And he was just raging like about how it's like a life-changing experience and it's like the last frontier and all this stuff. So, you know, it's like 14 days with no internet. And the longest I'd ever been in my life was two days. So I'm like, well, if I'm ever going to get a chance, it, it might be now, right? Because I'm not like, I don't have a lot of, of responsibility and a lot of things I need to attend to. So I got a couple of buddies that were uh, Asia friends that also own their own businesses. And um, they decided they'd go as well. So we went down. I started in Peru, went down through Bolivia, all the way down through Chile, Patagonia. Then took we took a boat. It was a 14-day boat down to Antarctica and then back up to uh, Argentina, back up to Buenos Aires and took off. And uh, the Antarctica thing was just like, it was just mind-blowing. Like, you think it's just this big sheet of ice and it's there's really like a lot of landscape there. And like, unfortunately, you go down there, you, it's just, it's so pristine and it's it's really warming a lot, like a lot of milk ice is melting and stuff and there's boats like before you know 20 30 years ago there was like a couple boats going a year now there's like boats going every single day from patagonia down there and even flights now they have direct flights down there so you're just like this whole thing's it's not commercialized but i mean there's just tourists there all the time now you know how soon until they build a hotel down there a resort or something it's like that's crazy and by landscape do you mean is there greenery or are there actual trees on it? There's um is I would say there's very limited green, but there's there looks like there should be. Um I'm not sure if that's just a consequence of, of not having enough, you know, heated months or whatever. 
but there's you know there's there's mountains it looks like you're you could be for people in the u.s it looks like you could be the rocky mountains like beautiful beautiful mountains pristine skies you know marine life everywhere uh, it's just it's it's really like a marine life fantasy world it looks like it could be out of like any some type of like cartoon or something like these pristine waters without a ripple in it and just like seals and orcas and and uh and all types of marine life just just swimming around like seemingly like there's nothing in the world that could go wrong you know that's crazy because they're probably not used to if people they're like spearfishing or anything just i mean yeah. water i would imagine is ice cold yeah it's in the ice mm-hmm. so what made you decide to jump in there naked <laughs> well so i get it's called a polar plunge and i was looking up on on uh, wikipedia this boat does it every year right or every time it goes down they do a polar plunge but of course 99 percent of people do it clothed but i was just looking it up and i was like it doesn't really count it's a polar plunge unless you're gonna go butt naked right so you're only in antarctica once go big or go home and then the, the second edition was instead of just they lower this this ramp all the way down to the sea level where you basically just like tiptoe in you know it's just like a three a three inch hop off, and uh, but my buddy went first. This guy Zach, um, and he, he just stripped. It's the whole boat. Keep in mind is like full of seventy year old people. It's like a retirement cruise basically, and he just strips off all of his clothes without covering himself at all. Walks right up to the second floor and then just does like a gainer off of it. So at that point, the, the stage was set, and we said uh, so. The three of us went naked, and everyone else went clothed. How many people actually ended up jumping in? Like, how many how many people were on the boat? There was like forty on the boat. I think twenty eight jumped in, which was incredible because there were so many people there that, like, I mean, they couldn't walk that well because they were pretty old and rigid, and they were all jumping in. And this, I mean, this water hits you, and when your head goes under the water, your whole body, like, it's a, it's a very indescribable feeling, but you lose your breath almost immediately. So, like, I jumped in, you know, like you jump in from say twenty feet. You go down maybe six or seven feet. By the time I got to the surface, I was like fully out of air. Like I needed air badly because it just sucks everything out of you. And um, of course, you know, all the old ladies enjoyed the uh, the shrinkage issues that three of us had. And uh, yeah, it was good chat in the bar later that night. With <laughs> I had the pot of doing that. I, and that's incredible. <laughs> Not that I want to jump naked into ice water, but I figure if I ever make it down all the way to Antarctica, and I know that's like my one shot, mm-hmm. I'm gonna yeah, you got to do it. I'll give you a shout out. It's, yeah, thanks, Christian. And I'm going to post that photo on uh, the show notes. Here. I'll send, you know what? I'll blow one up uh, poster size for you and we can hang, <laughs> hang it up for you at Pun Space. Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> just, I'll put it uh, just like above my bed. <laughs> so if you guys want to see that photo, just go to the show notes of episode 105. Um, so how did you get out of the water? I mean, how, like, did you swim around for a bit? Because I would imagine they would just fish you out because you wouldn't be able to move. It, it's unbelievable, but they... They took the the hottest girl. There was this South African girl that was like 32. She was so cute. And they put her down of all people on the plank. There's like a plank, you know, that everyone was hopping off of. They put her down to help everybody up. Like she's not, you know, she's not the strongest person or whatever. But what, for whatever, whatever reason, they put her down there. So she's literally giving people hands up. So we're, we're getting back onto the plank um, completely frozen and naked. And like here's this like really cute South African girl. This, testicles. Just oh, it's, like they're hiding inside. It's, it's, like, it's totally inverted. Yeah. Totally inverted. It's like. A bear in a cave it's, for, for winter. Yeah, like a, tur- like a turtle going into its shell. It's like it's nothing. It's, it's, it's something that it's never even thought of experiencing before. It's. <laughs> maybe she volunteered to go down probably she she Pretty heard bad. stories uh i'm sure she did it before too so <laughs> i like it yeah so, i would definitely re- recommend getting down there the, it costs you can do the, the cruises for like two grand um they start at like 10 days i think maybe you might be able to get like eight or nine days the quickest just like just get down there and turn around but it takes two to three days just across the drake sea for those that don't know the drake sea it's, it's basically the roughest waters in the world uh, so when we were going down, there were swells of about 15 to 20 feet. And that was like just kind of normal. When we were coming back, it was totally flat. They said it like that happens like maybe once or twice every single summer. So we we're super, super fortunate there. But just be prepared going down like the entire our entire boat was seasick and, and like bedside for two to three days. So it's a bit of a hike to get down there. You have to kind of prepare yourself for it if you're not used to boats. But it, was the boat ride worth it versus flying? Oh, I mean, I think I think crossing like the Drake Sea has so much history of, you know, it goes history dating back like five, six hundred years. People trying to 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 uh, round the Cape. And, you know, it's over the last 200 years. There's some like 400 boats have sunk 
you know, not not these big Russian icebreakers typically, but um, but it's it's you know it's incredible experience to be on that ocean and, and crossing down to Antarctica. So I think if you're going to go, you know, you definitely take a boat. You want to go to Greenland, you can fly, but if you're going to go to Antarctica, do it do it and, the way. And this wasn't like a luxury yacht or anything, right? Like it looked it looked like it was a it's like a small a, boat, man. It was yeah. like 150 feet. Um, so I don't know what a typical cruise liner is. Maybe like a thousand, a thousand feet. feet. Yeah. Uh, so, it, and especially like when you see this thing up close, it looks really small. And it, it it was actually pretty small. The rooms were pretty typical, like to a cruise boat. But it was an old boat, it was like 1985. And the the two big amenities that had on it, one was a sauna, which nobody knew about. The whole crew was Russian, and we found out about it. And so everyone thought that it was like just for the the Russian crew, and that if they went down there, it'd be like you know eight. <laughs> Like burly guys just like stacked on top of each other. But it turned out no one was ever in there. So we went every single day, like two, three times a day. And there was never another person in the entire time. It was amazing. And you never bothered to tell all the retirees to go I, don't, I just don't think, you know, I don't know what, for whatever reason, it just didn't interest them. I, I would think that would have been the number one attraction. There wasn't much to do on the boat at all. And the second thing was they had this this old school bar with an amazing liquor selection, like old scotches and and uh, different types of wines and stuff. So that was a hot spot. Between like every day you're freezing, you're literally freezing. No matter what you're doing, you're kayaking, you're snorkeling, you're just on the land in Antarctica, you're freezing. And um, so when you get back between the sun and the bar, I mean, you have a, a great afternoon. I can imagine that. So you're saying that they had a good liquor selection. What were some of the things that you enjoyed there? Well, we were drinking scotch, a lot of scotch on the rocks. Um, after after my trip to Chile and Argentina, I got super into fine wines, fine Chilean and Argentina wines, because I, I realized like I drink so much wine and I never know what to pick. Like I always pick Chilean wines because I just kind of like Chile, but I don't know anything about French wines, Italian. There's so many different wine regions in the world. So I figured I'll try to just master Chilean and Argentina wines like they're, you know, they're, they're nice wines, they're premium wines. So we brought <laughs> through the trip to through Chile, we visited uh, probably 20 different vineyards and they all have the different lines. They have their cheap bottles, their middle grade, their, you know, their, their premium, their ultra premium. So we get a nice bottle. By the time we got to the, the boat, I was carrying 17 bottles of wine, which was you have no idea how heavy 17 bottles of wine is like I it was breaking my back everywhere we're going. It's like two cases. Oh, it's, it's, it's incredibly heavy. And we're backpacking, right? We didn't have suitcases. So I had an, an entire duffel bag and I had a girl with me. So she's carrying like five bottles. I'm trying to lug 12 around, buses everywhere. So I was like, there's no way I'm bringing this back to the U.S. with me. It's just too much pain in the ass. So we just started, we were drinking like, you know, one a day. And then they had a lot of uh, like French, South African, U.S. wines. So we, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Red wine and scotch. Oh my God. I, I'm just imagining this 14 days on a Russian ice breaking barge the view of nothing but the sea and And no internet no tv you know you really like it's it's a massive change the first two days was incredibly tough between the the rough seas and no basically no stimulation right you have no phone no internet no tv you're cooped up in like a really small boat um everyone speaks russian everyone speaks russian and you would go the cool one cool thing is you could go to the bridge and there in the bridge you have a 180 view of the ocean and it's just like you said i mean it's nothing but ocean and it swells it's big swells and it's kind of like uh you're staring at the the russians the, the crew there's four or five guys up there two guys are like spotting with binoculars one's driving one's doing navigation and they're just stole they're just stone-faced like this is just a day at the office right because everyone else is like is this like normal swells or it's like they're just these guys are just hard and hardcore um it turns out they were all ex-military and did the North, uh, the North Pole with Russian icebreakers. The Russian icebreakers in the North Pole can actually get to the North Pole with an icebreaker. In Antarctica, they can only they can't go that far south. It's like the ice is too deep. Um, so they had experience like all over the world doing this type of stuff, and they they were just having fun. Like they love this stuff, you know, like navigating swells, navigating ice. It's like that's what they thrive on. So were these guys getting smashed every night at the bar? No, I think I saw the captain have one drink. I think it's. Uh, they have they have pretty tight like maritime restrictions on them. Um, I asked one of the girl crew, and she said that they're they they're working in six month shifts, and they're not allowed to drink for six months. That's so insane. Yes, yeah, so, but you know, rules are meant to be bent a little bit. So I'm sure I'm sure they have a they have their fun. 
Yeah, but you know, I guess it's a good thing. I wouldn't want my my captain getting smashed in vodka every night. No, navigating like right. deep seas. Absolutely, you yeah. start going through big chunks. Of, like they would they would uh, plow ice. They would hit icebergs, and the, your whole, whole time you're thinking Titanic. <laughs> like you learn your lesson, but you can't see how deep these icebergs are. They obviously have a gauge for it, but it was pretty incredible because you'd hit some of these icebergs, and some would just split immediately in half, and other ones you would hit, and the whole boat would basically halt. And then the whole iceberg would move kind of forward in a big lunge and then kind of slowly crack and break apart. So they were actually breaking ice. Oh, yeah. We were break, And uh, we broke through this one ice sheet where they actually had to do – they had to carve it out. It was incredible. I have video of it. So they would go in and they could say they go into this ice sheet maybe 30 yards and then the boat would stop. And then they have to back out. They come around to the side and they'd come in from a different angle. So they're taking like a pizza wedge out. And then that whole wedge would chip away. And then they would come in. And they would do this in like wider and wider pizza bit, uh, shapes and literally, you know, take them hours and hours to get through a couple hundred yards of ice. But it was, it was you know, they were just having fun trying to figure out how to put the puzzle together. And how did it feel while they were smashing these icebergs? Well, the first time, of course, you get apprehensive about it. And then afterwards, you realize that, you know, this boat's made for it and these guys are trained and just like they're like kids in a, in a kid park, right? But at any point, like, did you feel like your life was in danger well most of the time i was drinking heavily on scotch um keep in mind there i say that right as i pour myself my first whiskey drink at one in the afternoon i'm pretty sure that was your second because no i think you're mistaken no no it's that half that that glass is full. I, th- I thought i did that one behind your computer screen <laughs> you were able to see that i like it all right i'll put a little extra soda there in there. You go. i don't want you Fine. to judge me <laughs> Uh, so what? One thing that people are probably wondering is, did you start traveling before you had money? Like, how, like, like, what was what was your life like? So we we talked about this a little bit um, yesterday at the Nomad Summit, and I hadn't traveled at, really at all until I would say I maybe gone to like two countries, but of course we go to like the two that everyone goes to, like the Bahamas and Canada and uh, and Mexico. When you're when you're from the U.S., you just go to stuff that's close by because you typically don't have enough time to travel across to Europe and stuff. So I didn't really get out out until until we had started SkySig, until SkySig was kind of, you know, it was somewhat of a business. We were doing 40 sales a day, and it was just just myself involved in it. So at that point is when I started traveling, but I really didn't have any money. I was taking, I was drawing like a $2,000 salary from SkySig, but I was going to relatively cheap places. I started in Central America, went down to Medellin, a little bit in the Caribbean, um, Eventually got over to Europe and was just kind of hostile hopping in Europe through a lot of the cheaper countries and stuff. Um, but you, like at that age, I was 25. I mean, I could have been sleeping. I mean, I did sleep at train station, like, you know, little benches and stuff. A lot of times, especially in like Scandinavia, eating snicker bars and living on. So I think a lot of it at that age, the experience of traveling on like a really tight budget, that's, you know, that's that's the experience, right? Like if you want to go through Europe and spend a lot of money and live at, and stay at nice hotels, I think that's something you appreciate a lot more like 50s, 60s, more of like retirement age. But I'm glad I went like to these some of these countries like Central America, El Salvador, places like that. I mean, that's something I went when I was a little naive and, and <laughs> not so scared. But that's not a place you want to go like just backpacking when you're or hanging out when you're like 40. There's, you know, there's more trouble than you can get in there than, than good. So how old are you now? 30. And I, and how old are you when you when you sold the company? Twenty eight, two thousand thirteen. So millionaire by thirty. Twenty eight. <laughs> I, I mean, how does that feel? Uh, you know, my whole life was always premised on success and what success would bring me. And I, I you know, I I grew up very very middle, you know, middle America, middle lower, you know, and so I I always admired like you know what people I knew that had money had and I always wanted that and I never you know I never I never got to taste that when I was younger um and for me work and like success was always something that I could I could like bury my head into so like just shaping your values and stuff you know you can't always go out and pick up the hottest chick you can't always go out and and get all of your desires but one thing you can definitely do is go out and work hard every day and feel good about it and if that's what you value good work and personal development that's something you can achieve every day so like at, at hard points in my life i literally just buried my head in my computer and was trying to figure things out and so i made this list of like all these things that i really wanted to do in this like in this life but i i set a hard date on it like i want to do these things before 30 
And after we sold the company, it was like I could just write a check and do those things and I didn't have to be anywhere. So doing those things became a lot less meaningful, actually. Um, so I think like, you know, there's a lot of books written on this stuff that basically say like the whole joy of like setting goals is is progressing towards those goals, not achieving those. And once you achieve achieve those goals, you have to be certain to reset goals higher and higher because um, it's kind of anticlimactic hitting goals. It's, it's all about getting towards that goal. And so that was kind of what it was for me. Like I, by the time we sold the business, I had already, I was already living my dream life off of $2,000 a month. Um, so when we sold the business, there was, there was a, all of a sudden like this huge void in my life of not having a hundred employees sur- surrounding me and, um, and all this work that I need to attend to every day. Of course, of course it's great. But I think for a lot of people, they, they overestimate what financial success will bring them and they might just stop and look and say, maybe I already have what I've, you know, the dream uh, to what a lot of people would say would be the dream. So yeah, it was, it was great in a lot of ways, been able to do a lot of good stuff, been able to do some like charitable stuff that I always wanted to get around to, um, and, um, have a little bit more time to focus on what I really want to do instead of what I have to do. But other than that, I think I look back and like the happiest times of, of, uh, the business were kind of when I was on the nomad scene, um, you know, the Americas and Europe, kind of living hostile, hostile while running a, a remote business. So, yeah, that's um, good stuff. So is that one of the reasons why, like, you were so kind of giving and, and so open and honest with everyone at the Nomad Summit? Just because you, you felt that and you see, you know, a lot of people are starting out. Yeah, and, and also there's people, there's this whole mentality that uh, against lifestyle businesses. And I think somewhat, you know, like, the, it's almost like how the U.S. has been shaped by Hollywood. And now, like, U.S. business is being shaped by Silicon Valley. And I just think the whole thing is kind of ridiculous because anyone who's gone through like venture fundraising knows like it's usually a fucking nightmare, right? There's all these strings attached. There's, it's, it's complicated. People are, I've seen more businesses fail because of who's involved in the business, whether that's bad partnership or bad investors, someone you don't want to answer to any day. It's, it's like no longer your business. You're just operating it for somebody else. So I, I just think people need to see more of stories of people that have been both places. They've been kind of a solo entrepreneur or, or running a um, kind of a digital nomad style lifestyle business. And people that have also had tremendous financial success and try to weigh in on those on those two and, and, and just let people know that like for for most people's, if you ask most people what their dream is, it's usually the nomadic way. It's working remote from a location of their choice on a schedule of their choice and answering to people who, that they want to. Once you get into like VC and, and even like even without VC, but building a big business, you have to go in and answer to employees and lawyers and accountants every single day. I mean, that's not the dream to most people. Put aside the put aside financial success. So there's just this this whole category of lifestyle businesses out there right now that I think are absolutely fantastic. And Silicon Valley kind of tries to stigmatize as like, you know, people that are just not motivated and stuff. But I think that the whole thing's rubbish and people should really step back and think about how much they want to scale their business or how much they want to enjoy what they're currently doing. So your company, SkyCity, that was kind of a lifestyle business, right? Mm-hmm. But you just also happen to have a big exit. Yeah. So I guess technically you, you could have both. If you have a lifestyle business that you can scale up, mm-hmm. make it profitable enough, you could still sell it for, for a big exit. Sure. Well, it, it was a lifestyle business forever for me, or for a long time for me, it was a lifestyle business. Um, and I had, a, I had a, you know, I, I was kind of content on keeping it that way. But it was also something that was growing almost without any sales effort. It was growing by word of mouth, and it was, uh, it was, a, it was a category that was expanding, and we had a leading brand in it. Um, and, you know, we, we just look, you just look at the numbers, and you're like, okay, well, at what point do you want to say, let's try to, you know, let's try to hit a home run. And we were quickly crossing that mark. Like every new day we're hitting sales records. It's like, okay, well we can all just kind of enjoy this or we already have a substantial business. So by the time we started really hiring people, we were at 200 sales a day, which was a a fairly substantial business. Um, And we, and at that point had no employees, but we had lots of profits every month. So we just made a decision to, to really go hard at it and centralize and try to take a big shot because at this point it was already big news. Like, e-cigarettes are disrupting tobacco tobacco's figuring out how to play it they fight it or they you know they buy it or they you know build their own so it was it was timing and it was you know it was a business decision and i had good good mentors and good advisors that saw saw the picture differently than i was currently currently operating it and kind of pushed the business into that direction i'm glad we did at the same time 
things couldn't have worked out. And instead of being a nomad for another two or three years, I got basically locked into Edinburgh and, and China for um, for a couple of years and like, you know, 15 hour work days, six, seven days a week. So it worked out. But, you know, for a lot of people taking that course might not work out. So this you just always have to think about what the end goal is and and um, what your your personal goals are for life and lifestyle before jumping into things. I like it. Uh, when you mentioned earlier that you you have advisors and mentors, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people listen to this. You know, that's that's kind of a big key where they're kind of missing. Yeah. How did you how did you find yours? How did you meet yours? I totally agree with that, and we talked a lot about that at the at the conference yesterday about finding someone whose lifestyle you really admire and and getting them to be an advisor to you. And I think that's crucially important. I, I think that the part of the lifestyle part of finding someone whose lifestyle you identify with and, and strive to have is the most important thing because people say, I want an advisor who's really smart. I want an advisor who's got a ton of money. But really what it comes down to is you can make a ton of money, but you got to learn, you got to understand how to shape your lifestyle. And that's not easy. Like you can, someone, some, you can win the lottery tomorrow and not know how to, how to use that money to build a, a lifestyle. Um, so getting people that have built a lifestyle and have morals and values and, and uh, you know, relationships that you admire, I think are really important. For my personal ones, I kind of fell into it. I built a website when I was in college. This goes back to 2006, 2007. Then I ended up selling um, to a, a guy that owned uh, college.com. It was doing a lot of internet stuff. And I've done business with him my entire life now. So he's always kind of been my mentor advisor and I've always looked up to him and always appreciated what he built in life, both on business and, and uh, personal lifestyle. And I've always done really hard work for him. Like he's financed a lot of things that I've been involved with and I've always been kind of the laborer. So we've, we've helped each other out in a lot of ways, but he's introduced me to a lot of people in his network. Whenever he gets a chance, you know, he's introducing me to people. So I've, I've grown tremendously both professionally and as a person just through contacts and Kind of watching uh, lifestyle habits of those people. I think there's a lot of things in there that some people might have missed. The first is you have to build something of value in the beginning. You know, I think a lot of people approach mentors and they they themselves have have done nothing themselves, and they kind of almost expect the mentor to just do everything for them. Right. The fact that you had the that website, and you know, even though it wasn't a profitable website, it mm-hmm. had visitors, so it's a value to that guy. Yeah. Absolutely. So you you know how they how they found that website. They went on. Um, I was graduating college, coming up. I was like beginning of my senior year. I had no idea what what to do. I'd like done this thing as kind of like a hobby. I listed my resume on Monster.com, and the first item on my resume on Monster.com was this website. And I put like CEO, right? Of course, it's like <laughs> there's no CEO in a, in a one person operation, but. I'd put to you, I you know, I'd put a link to it, and I got a phone call the next day, or not the next day, but anyways, it was pretty short term after, from this totally like geeky person that was partners with this other guy on the thing. And he's like, "Hey, I uh, I saw your your resume, and I saw uh, the website, and um, yeah, I was just interested to know if you'd be willing to sell it, and you know, and uh, work with us and stuff." And I thought it was like I didn't know what where they'd got my information or or whatnot, and so sometimes you know like you don't know how it's going to happen. Like I had written off that website as a total loss and like just a learning experience for me, but you build things and you put it out there and you know, someone out there recognizes it as value to, to something they're doing. And you know, so you never we, know. what was that site? It was called uh, the Greek faces. And it was basically just a way for people who were part of a fraternity or, or I assume a sorority to, to connect, right? You're right. It was, it was basically like a face case. Okay, actually I, I launched it. Right after Facebook had launched and was only in like five or ten colleges in the U.S. and quickly just thought, well, this would be useful, but like in a niche market for fraternities and sororities, with they just want to connect but not have the outsiders. So that's it was very simple, um, but it was good. And it was, again, it was good timing. There was there were like no social networks at that time, right? It was like Facebook and Friendster and MySpace was dying, and um, I think Friendster was gone as well, and. It was so easy to get people to sign up on these things because it was so new, right? So um, it didn't take a lot of work. Just basically like going to sorority houses and fraternity houses and telling, putting out flyers, and like everyone was jumping on because they thought it was the coolest thing. You know, and for people kind of thinking today, like what could they they build? Uh, Nomad List is a great example. Mm. You know, Skinner Peter Levels. He started it as a way just to kind of let people 
chime in and rank about where the best places, uh, what, what the best cities in the world are to work remotely. And so Chiang Mai constantly is on top of it. Mm-hmm. But this list, I mean, he, he made this site, you know, two years ago, never really monetized it, but it gets tons of traffic because it's something that's needed. So that's you know, just a great example of something yeah. that people can do today. And because of that, I don't know if you if you ever sold it, but it's worth a lot of money now. Right. And more importantly, it connects him to community, community, but also top people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think everyone out there knows something better than everyone else. They just don't realize it. But even it's you know, it might be your neighborhood, or it could be you know, this guy obviously is in the nomad scene. There's tons tons of people here that are doing very niche things. And for anyone who hasn't gotten started. I mean, my everything kind of leads into the next thing, right? And I've had a lot of failures along the way, but my failures in different spots have led to successes in other spots, as long as you're willing to understand that failures are an experience. And, you know, if you if you lose five grand or ten grand, right? That that's just education. Think of it as is educating yourself. Don't think of it as a failure. It's 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 getting your your, your you know, your bachelor's in arts and something else or your PhD in something else. So every, you know, I've had failures in e-commerce before, but of course, SkySig was a tremendous e-commerce success, which I learned a lot of off of those failures. Um, social networking certainly played into, I didn't make any money off of uh, the, the company, the company that bought my website, they later sold for like $6 million. I didn't make any money off that. But what I learned from building social networking community of course, helped me in uh, in SkySig's you know social aspects and stuff. So everything you do will will lead into another thing and uh, will be a, a tremendous learning experience and value add. So you know you hear this from a lot of people, but the, for, if you haven't got started with anything, the best thing to do is just get started. No yeah. matter what it is, selling a product on Amazon, writing a blog, just get started, and you're gonna you know you're gonna increase your your personal worth. Yeah, one hundred percent. And you know if you're gonna do something, you might as well do something that either really matters um, that you think to add really a lot of value or, you know, you can just do something where you can start making money like, like a product business. Right. Um, so, but I, I think so many people, they spend so much time just trying to, trying to think and worry. Think and worry. Absolutely. There's a lot of worrying going in the world right now. A lot of worrying. Yeah. You, you know, uh, James Alcher, how do you, how do you pronounce his last yeah, name? Yeah. James Alcher. He puts out some great, great content. And uh, I, the two people I, I basically uh, subscribe to because I try not to, to, there's just so much good content out there and pretty much whatever comes to my mailbox i read so i try to be really selective but i, I basically listen to tim ferris's stuff his podcast is you know his content and i listen to james alter i think i'm butchering his last name but his content is great and it it, it ta- it's very practical in a sense like it talks about just getting started it ta- he went from he made like 20 million bucks um at a pretty young age and lost it all and he went into like me- mega depressions and had to really reinvent himself and went from living like a rock star life to basically living out of like a dirt cheap hotel and, and you know, being on <laughs> depression meds and stuff. And he's very candid about everything. But he put some, together some really practical stuff that I 100% agree with just on, on how to get started and, and not, to, not to worry about, you know, what's going to happen. Just, just get started with something. And if you've already gotten started, maybe you've had a failure, get started again. Just keep going. And eventually, it might not be the first one, it might not be the second one, but you're going to be successful. And everyone I know that's ever really been committed into creating something, they've had success. It may have taken them 10 years, but eventually, you have success. It's just commitment and perseverance. That is my favorite thing. Every single person I've met here in Chiang Mai a few years ago, Mm -hmm. if they are still here, they've all been successful. Absolutely, right? I'm sure there's a lot of people who've disappeared, who I I haven't seen, you know, maybe they've been Mm -hmm. back home, they got a job at Jack in the Box. But the people that have stuck around, they're all successful. Right. I mean, some of them are ultra successful. Some of them are just, you know, they're making a couple thousand bucks. Do you want to try this new whiskey, by the way? This other one? They're both Ben Moore, right? Both Ben Moore, but this one doesn't have the sherry in it. Are they both from 7-Eleven? They're both from 7-Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if there's going to be a huge taste no, 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 difference you gotta, then. You got to shoot that one. Okay. Finish that, bo- that sip. Oh, so, so. Tell oh. me, as a uh, whiskey, as a scotch connoisseur, how they compare? The prefaces conversation. We're we're taking shots before lunch, actually, yeah. or at lunch. At lunch, but they were the most disgusting shots in the world. It was really strong. And yeah, we can hardly. I, I think we can hardly get down. I think um, it's whiskey's a lot smoother. Yeah, Sam, he he grabbed the water straight away. Yeah, I, I manned up a bit. And your tongue's still green. It is so we had wheatgrass shots <laughs> during lunch, yeah. and it kind of uh, I don't know. I, I guess that kind of 
started this whole thing. You got me with soda water today. I'll just do real water. Anyone want inspiration for living a healthy life? Johnny had a wheatgrass shot for lunch and ordered two salads. Two salads for lunch. And I, I figure if I'm gonna get if I'm gonna fill up on something, I might as well do it on two huge plates of salad. Yeah. Well, I guess you knew we were gonna be drinking whiskey for a piss lunch. I but. had zero like <laughs> inclination. Just <laughs> drink any whiskey during this podcast. <laughs> but you've. Um, I figure you know what. Well, glad I could be a bad influence on Thank you, man. You. Well, maybe, I figure I just gotta follow whatever. you Maybe doing. we'll do a little polar plunge in the Siri pool after this. It, it actually, the, our pool has felt like an iceberg. It really time. has. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to a little bit warmer weather. And um, yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, I'm heading down to the islands pretty soon. Tomorrow, I leave for Vietnam. Uh, Anton, who's my mentor, he's getting married. So Good. Big congrats to Anton. Yeah, that'll be nice. That'll be a nice trip. I think I'm gonna head down to. I'll probably see you in Colanta. I want to check that out and then maybe Phuket for a little Muay Thai training. And then, um, you know what? Some I've always wanted to do that I'm going to try to do during burning season. I got this idea to walk around Koh Samui and I, I took a look at a map and the majority of it you can do by beach. So I'm just like, okay, barefoot with a backpack on the beach and you walk, no plan, right? You walk until like you, you feel, you know, you're done walking and you just walk up to a hotel that's there because there's hotels everywhere, right? And then, so I, I think it will take eight days if you walk like, I don't know, maybe it might be like eight, eight miles a day or something. But I'm like, that would be badass, right? You get up at like seven, you have a, a coffee, you walk until noon. That's it for the day. You work all afternoon and then you continue on. You could say you walked around Kosamui. So we're going to add that to our list. Let's do it. So, no, 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 no I'm not company. doing it. I'm adding to this. I want company. That someone mentioned uh, at the pool party. It was uh, We had a pool party the day after the summit of things that are classy oh, if you're rich and things that are just trashy if you're broke whatever johnny says about me is not true <laughs> he tries he tries to pick apart my uh, attire yeah. and my my fashion so i don't remember it's multi multinational fashion but one was uh, florida which is where <laughs> which happens to be where i'm from so explain explain what like how I, that works. makes sense because if you are a baller Florida, and you say I'm going to Florida, they assume you're going to South Beach, Miami. Mm-hmm. You're probably on a yacht. You're probably, you know, hanging out with supermodels. Right. And you're having a great time. If you're broke and living in Florida or going to Florida, you're probably in an RV and trailer home, getting pain pills, going from one pharmacy to another. And I know a lot of people doing that, by the way. <laughs> but wait, do you, you, your listeners know what this list is all about? It's it's the classy, the classy versus rich list. So it's, I'm sorry, classy versus trashy, trashy list. So it's like, thing it's so spot on oh my gosh so it's things that if you're rich are cool and if you're poor are total trash so florida's one like if you live in florida and you're rich it's 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 looked as classy if you're poor it's like it's really bad day what, drinking day drinking <laughs> number two right so imagine someone at like the pool or like just drinking a budweiser at lunch if you're rich it's like he's sophisticated probably a banker and if you're poor it's like you're an alcoholic and white, white trash and just add to the list is not having shoes and walking for eight days without a plan. <laughs> well, I got picked apart at the pool yesterday because I wore a silver necklace, a backwards hat, aviators with bright blue lenses. I brought a football. I brought a football to the pool, which I guess is not cool anymore. There's a few other. There was a few other things. I had a shaved chest. Yeah. Uh, but a hundred percent, if you, you know you're this broke dude with no job. And you showed up. That's the look. Wearing exactly what you're wearing. That's the look. The football. Who wants to throw the pigskin? Ordering a beer, <laughs> like, what, you know, 1 p.m. I actually got laughed at by the lady, the pool lady, for trying to order a beer. She laughed at me. I, like, where is it taboo to order a beer in Thailand? But she, she thought it was totally, and I, I was immediately thinking back to the list. Like, she's thinking I'm white trash. Because everyone else is ordering Trashy. coconuts or, like, iced teas. Well, it was past. Like it was one o'clock. I mean, I think isn't like noon the limit? If it's noon, if it's if you're ordering a beer before noon, the only place in the world that that's acceptable is the airport, right? You ever think uh, about I don't that? Think acceptable. Why would, oh, why would you because order everyone beer? everyone drinks beers before they fly, right? No, I never done that. Oh, come on. Actually, Take, open sucks. your eyes now. Oh, you see, like six a.m. All all the bars are open. Insane. Yeah. Okay, so what sucks? People is like to have a little cocktail before they go. Ever since I was able to afford to fly business class, I've stopped drinking. That is just insane to me. And now I have access to all this free booze. Mm-hmm. And usually in the lounges, they have like the pills. Right. Pretty yeah. decent stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, what better way to, to pass a long flight than just to, just to order you know, champagne but, and booze and just get snacks? 
But you're not. You're back on the drink now, right? Well, I mean, I just had a glass of whiskey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, technically, I'm not. Well, let's go, let's fly let's fly down to Phuket. You, you <laughs> can fly like Chiang Mai to Phuket business class for like 180 bucks or something. Thai Airways yeah, 747. It's ridiculous. Actually, I think the only the only flight I spend a lot of money on within Thailand. Normally, I just fly whatever the cheapest is, especially mm-hmm. if it's uh, direct, because it's usually like an hour or two flight at most. But the one flight I'll spend the extra money on is from Chiang Mai to Koh Samui. Mm-hmm. Because I hate going through all the other airports like Saratani and all these. Yeah, yeah. Some people take these buses mm-hmm. that take twelve hours to get to. Yeah, that's Bangkok. not a fun ride. It's a shitty bus too. Oh, it's terrible. Done it. Yeah. Uh, and then another like twelve hours to get to Saratani, and another like four hours to get to the island. And mm-hmm. by the time you get there, you're exhausted. Mm-hmm. Or you can take Thai Airways, which flies in this private airport. That mm-hmm. is it's it's there, yeah, right? it's great. It is the nicest airport. It is. It is honestly. It's just. It's like being on holiday at the airport. It's amazing. Yeah, it looks like a resort. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And then you're already on the island. Yeah. If you want to go to Copenhagen, it's like an hour from. Yeah, it's like an hour ferry. Yeah, it's not a cheap flight actually, because they, because yeah. because like Thai Airways or was it is it Bangkok Air or Thai? They both fly there. No, no, it's only one. I think, no, I think sorry, it's Bangkok, I think it's Air. Bangkok Air. They right, own. Right. They basically own the airport. They, so they charge there. whatever. Like if you to Singapore to Koh Samui is like four hundred fifty dollar flight. It's like forty five minutes. It's insane. But I, I'll I'll make a recommendation to to uh, the reader or listeners out there, if you ever want to have. A, like a really first class experience and i always recommend this to anyone at any level right like no matter what type of money you're making where you're at like my assistant fern in in uh Chiang Mai, like you know she makes a normal weight like thai wage and i'm like you got you got to go like spo- spoil yourself a little bit you know if, if these super motivated people out there that want like go and and taste some of the fruits of life even if you can't really afford it because it, it helps continue to inspire and motivate you so one thing you can do is from between Hong Kong and Bangkok, Emirates flies the A380, which is the, the it, this thing dwarfs a 747. It's like it's a massive double decker plane. And on board the Emirates, there's a, a new famous Jennifer Aniston commercial out for Emirates. They have an onboard bar that's it's huge. It's like being at a real bar, and they have a real bar in there with a bartender. And for 400, it's usually between like around 400 to 450 dollars. You can fly Hong Kong to Bangkok or the other way. It's three hours. And the entire time, like, you just go hang out in the lounge. You have a bartender. It's This plane is like a shopping mall. It's it's such an incredible experience. Like, you feel like such a boss, really. I mean, it's it's really incredible. So I'd recommend anybody save up your 450 and do it, you know, do it for fun, whatever. Fly there and then fly back or or, um, or find an excuse to go to Bangkok or Hong Kong from one or the other. But it's it's about the cheapest flight you can take to get that it's about the cheapest type of, of money you can spend to get that type of experience it's it's proper first class especially because the drinks are included since you're flying yeah you, you literally it's a three-hour flight you spend two and a half hours in the lounge you get you know they're they're serving hors d'oeuvres and you're drinking you know fine wine and whiskey and but just it's a different flying experience than you can ever experience because you forget that you're actually flying you're not in a seat you're walking around an onboard lounge with sofas and bartenders and it's it's the future of flying i mean i hope I hope eventually, like these A three eighters are everywhere, and Emirates is really setting a new standard in flying. And is that for business class or only first class? That's business. So they also have first class, which you can do for seven hundred dollars, and I've done that as well. And that, uh, for anyone who likes to take selfies, it's worth it. Like I was, it's uh, you get your basically your own room on this plane. Like you can look up photos of it and stuff. You get your own room with like an electronic door. That opens up to the side, and you, you pretty much have like a butler the entire time. Just so, yeah, I, I actually did that when I was 28 uh, for my birthday because I had to go to Hong Kong. This was before we sold the business, and I was traveling from the UK to China a lot. And I would always fly Emirates via Dubai. It would stop for like an hour in Bangkok, and then up. And I I uh, I upgraded to business class for my birthday, or I'm sorry, first class. So business class is 450, first class is 700. They're both worth it. Treat yourself to it. You'll it'll uh it'll inspire you. I like it. And if you guys don't have that money right now, just write it down as a goal. Say, mm-hmm. you know, this year in 2016, I'm going to fly to Asia. I'm going to ball out on, the, on this on the business flight. And who knows? You might meet your ne- next mentor sitting up business class in Jersey. That's a very good point. I've met some ridiculously well-connected and very interesting people because all the guys that are, you know, got something going on, they all want to go to the bar. They don't want to be stuck in a little seat. They want to go to the bar. They want to chat it up with the Emirates stewardesses. They want to, you know, See who else is on board. It's like a networking event. On, on uh, I can't recommend it enough. It's I think it's the best four hundred and fifty dollars anyone in the space can spend. Uh, well, next time I need to make a visa run or leave the country, 
I'm just gonna do that. I'll do it with you, buddy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll do it for. I'll do it for fun. We'll go have some dim sum. Yeah. Absolutely. Just straight back the next day. <laughs> right. Yeah. We can fly. We can fly back on Hong Kong Express for ninety nine dollars. Oh yeah. Yeah. So would you recommend balling out on the way there or balling on the way back? I think balling out on the way to Hong Kong is the better way to do it. Yeah, and you sense. get you get the bank. You get a great lounge going there. Um, but yeah, there's you know Hong Kong's a pretty inspirational place on its own. And flying in there in style is, you know, you can go stay at a $30 a night hostel there after you get off the plane. But flying in there in style feels pretty good. <laughs> you know what I like about you is you mix it up. Like, mm. you still take buses. Absolutely. <laughs> you still stay in hostels. <laughs> Absolutely. It all goes back to what I said initially. Like, you always have to live well below your standards. Or not well below your standards. Well, un- <laughs> well below your means, right? And date below your standards. What what is dangerous for people that start having success is they increase all the standards in their life and all the qualities in their life, and you get spoiled. It, I, honestly, I have to leave Thailand multiple times a year to appreciate it. You know, humans are extremely adaptive, and when you live here, and you're getting massage every day, eating out three meals a day, all these things you start to take it for granted. So you have to, you know, you have to escape it, but you also have to put yourself in, in different situations. If, if for every time I fly business or first class, I fly economy and sit next to the bathrooms on purpose. Uh, for every time I stay at a five-star resort, I'll stay at a hostel. And one is not necessarily better than the other. It's just an experience. You know, I've had many of my, I continue to have many of the best times of my life staying at hostels and just hanging out with, you know, the group there and going out and partying and stuff like that. Um, so I think it's important to keep balance. You know, you don't have to bring pain to yourself to sacrifice or compromise some type of quality uh, standard. But I think it's very important to keep balance in everything you do. And Yeah, and it's almost like be setting your expectations. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm the exact same way. I, I think I caught myself on, on my last flight just being one of those snobby assholes. Yeah. Because I got so used to this great service in business class all the time. Yeah. That once things messed up or I had a crappy seat or, you know what, even like, this is I, I don't even want to say this, but I was sitting in business class. I'm so used to it being pretty empty up there. Right. I always have two seats myself. Mm-hmm. And this time I had someone next to me. I was like, what is this? You know, right. like, why yeah. do I have someone next to me? Yeah. And, you know, even though I have this giant wide seat that like fully reclines. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I agree with that. And, you know, living, doing too much of that stuff does cause you to be a complainer. I, I find it myself all the time when I have too much of like a luxurious streak. I, you know, I find myself in queues or whatever and I'm, I'm complaining but you know there is there is a line to be drawn and i think babies in business class that just that's got to go <laughs> like why does your baby need to be, fly business class yeah. and you know what i understand if it's the if it's a like a baby baby where like it's free for them anyways so the mom's like you know i want more space so i put the baby you know in the bonnet but like when it's like young children that they're paying full price for a seat anyways they do not need to be up there i don't think anything that's crying or making noise needs to be in business class like People are paying, it's called business class, so people want to, you know, feel in a business environment. And a, a crying baby ruins the flight for everyone who just spent X amount of money to fly business. So I think, I think babies got to go. I think they got to be put in the back, by the bathrooms, in, 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 in dedicated rows. And um, Maybe they should just have a nursery section on a plane. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, you know, like put it behind soundproof doors and yeah. stuff. Like, why do babies have to fly like 12 hours? So actually, you know? one thing that, that I've always thought about is why are those babies on a plane anyways? Agree. Like, I, I, just, like I, I understand when people have a kid, they want to show it off to the family, the relatives. Mm-hmm. That baby should not be flying. Right. Like, it's not healthy for the baby. Agree. It's like, it's not nice. It's stressful for everybody Agree. involved. Agree. It's, it sucks for everyone else on the plane. Agree. Like, stay home and take care of the baby. Let it crawl around in the backyard. Go camping. Maybe drive somewhere. Go camping. Agree. Let the, let the baby crawl around. Have fun. Agree. And if your family wants to see the baby, have them come to you. Oh, God. I get you're, you're preaching to the choir, man. I mean, <laughs> maybe we should approach Branson and say, baby-free airlines. Yeah. You know? Turn into much more of like a social gathering. <laughs> no babies on board. Maybe bring back smoking on planes or something. <laughs> no, I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> But I like that this has been been a really great episode. I think a lot of people are pissed off that we hardly talked at all about the business. But the only reason why I didn't do that is because we recorded Sam's entire talk and it's going to be free. So if you just go to nomadsummit.com, enter your email address, we'll send you all the videos of all 10 incredible speakers 
including Sam's entire presentation, when he really broke down exactly what he did from step one to step 100 million, which is what they sold the company for. Uh, and it, it, like, trust me, it's, it's going to blow your mind. Uh, so I'm really happy that I got to pick Sam's brain kind of, you know, nonchalantly. Mm-hmm. Is, is this what you expected the podcast to be like? Uh, you know, with you, Johnny, it's always it's always the random show. So <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I like it. So cool. Uh, so the new business that you're working on is coworker.com. That's correct. Is, yeah. is that up, up and running ready? It is running. It's um, it's it's growing tremendously f- fast. Although I don't think we'll be worrying about monetization for a long, long while. But um, but yeah, we're getting. It's for anyone who doesn't know. It's it's uh, in an unexciting way. It's TripAdvisor for co-working spaces, but it's a lot more substantial than that. Um, but what basically what we're doing is is creating a a review and a rating and review site for for all co-working spaces around the world. Johnny and I are currently working out of Pun Space. Um, and yeah, we just really identify with the whole the whole category of, and community. We talked a lot about community yesterday and how important it is to kind of be connected in a productive environment. So that's you know it's it's kind of a passionate um, project that that uh, myself and Leanne are working on. Um, so yeah, I invite everyone to go out and check it out. All right, that's coworker.com. Uh, I just want to give a quick shout out to our main sponsor of the summit. It's Drip. Uh, they are email marketing software. And if you guys aren't building your email list already, it, please do so because that's the, the one thing that everyone regrets not doing. And they're a great service. So you can just check out getdrip.com and check out the summit site, uh, nomadsummit.com. Thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, any any other way people can reach you besides coworker.com? I'm pretty available on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Sam Marks. I am. I am. I am, but not I am, but I am, right? Like I am, letter I, yeah, instant message. (laughs) Shit, that's hard to say. Anyways. So I'm going to have a link to all that in the show notes. This is episode 105, travellikeabosspodcast.com. And uh, thanks for for being on the show. And I'll see you guys all next week. Sounds good, guys. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, Join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.